All right, hello, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. Let's get this started. So um, today, today's episode is going to be another look at the problem of literature and knowledge. Does literature give us knowledge? If so, what kind of knowledge? And knowledge about what? So um, let me repeat what I mentioned in an earlier episode about what Morse Peckham has suggested on this topic. Uh, in Peckham's view, there are three kinds of knowledge that literature might give us, uh, depending on how we interpret it, on how we interpret a particular piece of literature or the sentences in literature. Uh, the three kinds of knowledge are propositional knowledge, uh, behavioral knowledge, and reorientational knowledge. Uh, propositional knowledge in literature is statements about the world that are interpreted as true and can be backed up by evidence. Uh, behavioral knowledge in literature is statements about how to do something, and these are, these are not really interpreted as true or false so much as effective or ineffective, um, safe or dangerous, dangerous, appropriate or inappropriate, and so on. And reorientational knowledge in literature is about how to experience something which we can possibly see as a special kind of behavioral knowledge. Uh, today I want to say more about reorientational knowledge. And I'm going to do this by looking at the writings of the uh, philosopher, the American philosopher, originally from uh, somewhere in South America. Um, Eliseo Vivas. So we're going to be looking at Eliseo Vivas. Um, he's not so well known, another philosopher who's not very so uh, not so very well known today, but he's very much worth knowing, I think, and maybe can give a little taste of him today of why he's worth uh, looking at. Uh, but one reason he's important is that he has a very extensive theory of literature as reorientational knowledge, and I'll I'll mention a few quibbles I have with it later on, but it's something I think worth um, grappling with. I heard recently that some people don't like that word grappling, but I already said it. Um, so as a literary theorist, Vivas was associated with the school of contextualism. Contextualism seems to be an offshoot of new criticism or a variety of new criticism, and uh, you may or may not know that new criticism was a method of reading literature that was popular in the 1940s and 1950s, associated with this uh, method of close reading. Anyway, the term contextualism is confusing. It doesn't really mean what uh, you might at first think it means. So I'm going to quote the explanation of conceptualism, uh, contextualization. Sorry, the, uh, I'll quote the um, definition of contextualism, getting my terms mixed up here, um, by Walter Sutton, another critic. Uh, Sutton was a critic of contextualism, and he and Vivas had some disagreements. But I think Sutton's explanation, at least on the surface, is uh, pretty clear. So Sutton writes that the effect of contextualism uh, has been to deny referential meaning to poetic language and to regard the poem or literary work as a self-contained language system, the meanings and values of which derive only from the interaction of the verbal elements of the work. In keeping with this view, the aesthetic response to literature is often described as an experience of rapt contemplation qualitatively distinct from ordinary perception or contemplation, 
and particularly from any scrutiny that would relate the elements of the work to the reader's literary or social experience. Uh, so basically Sutton is claiming that contextualist critics believe that poems do not tell us anything about the world, that poems are autonomous systems which get, get their meaning uh, from the relations of their words to each other and not from their relations to anything outside of the poem. Um, and note, by the way, that in, in, in these discussions, the word poem is really shorthand for any piece of literature or literary work. So when I say, if I say poem today, and I probably will, uh, once in a while, it could be anything that's considered literature, like even a novel they talk about as poems. Um, yeah, so Sutton gives kind of a common understanding of contextualism, partly a misunderstanding. So, But I mention Sutton because his writings give some good background on contextualism. Um, but his view is really the view of an outsider and um, rather than a practitioner of contextualism. And it's also partly wrong, but I think it's wrong in a way that's um, useful because I think it's a common, common misunderstanding. So for Vivas, at least, a poem is experienced as autonomous or non-referential, as only about itself, when it is experienced aesthetically. So that's kind of the main distinction here. There's different ways of experiencing a poem, but if you experience it aesthetically, then that's the experience of it as autonomous, as self-referential or non-referential to other things outside of it. So a poem can, in reality, uh, be read or experienced in any number of ways. We can read it psychologically, we can read it sociologically or historically or allegorically, and so on and so on and so on. Um, but in, and in these cases, we can take the poem to re be referring to the world outside of itself, outside of the poem. But to experience the poem as a poem, as an aesthetic object, is to experience the poem as a self-contained world, as a world unto itself, as an autonomous object. Um, and this concept of aesthetic experience leads to interesting questions about the function of art or poetry and about the meaning of knowledge. So I'll get into the question of knowledge here, because that's my main, my main uh, focus. But first I should say that Vivas normally understood knowledge to mean assertoric or propositional knowledge. Knowledge um, in this sense consists of statements about objects or states of affairs which can be tested for truth. Uh, we test assertions or propositions by showing whether they are really adequate, right? You take a sentence and you see whether it is really adequate to uh, something outside of itself. Um, just the states of affairs, the conditions of the world, which the sentence is about. Or you uh, test it by relating it to other assertions. So you can test an assertion by relating it to other assertions. Um, it's more of a coherence view of truth. Um, and any, there, yeah, so there, and there's other ways that you can use to test assertions. Those are kind of the two uh, common ones. Uh, more of a pragmatic view would be, is, it use, is this assertion useful for helping you get something done? Anyway, we're not, I don't need to go into that, all of that right now. Um, but the, anyway, this is what Vivas takes to be a traditional view of knowledge. Statements that are testable in some way, in one of the various ways that we have of testing um, 
assertions. And literature can indeed be read or interpreted as referential in this sense. We can read literature as providing uh, propositional knowledge about society or psychology or geography or any other non-artistic domain or non-aesthetic domain. Um, but this is to read a poem sociologically or psychologically or geographically or historically or whatever. And Vivas was more interested in what it meant to read a poem aesthetically, specifically aesthetically. And before I get into that, I should mention that although Vivas did not consider himself a pragmatist or naturalist, he was heavily influenced by John Dewey's aesthetics. Um, and Vivas takes over certain key terms from Dewey, such as transaction, and a certain amount of what he says about aesthetic experience can also be found in Dewey's classic word, classic work, art as experience. Um, but I'm not going to try to point out all the uh, parallels with Dewey here. I'll, I'm hoping to talk about uh, Dewey at some later time when it kind of matches up with what I'm doing. But anyway, um, so although literature can give us propositional knowledge, that not that's not right. That's not what makes it literary. And Vivas, I should maybe mention, doesn't say that much about behavioral knowledge as um, Peckham defines it. Uh, so for Vivas, literature as literature is a kind of reorientational knowledge, as Peckham um, calls it. And this will become clearer as we go. Um, and this reorientational knowledge is a kind of knowledge that actually grounds those other kinds of knowledge. So for Vivas, literature makes knowledge possible or more broadly we could say art uh, myth making storytelling these kinds of things make knowledge possible they make reality meaningful it's through them vivas says that reality is grasped so it's kind of this image of we grab reality through um aesthetic experience or art and there's a little of a issue here that i'll get into later um, so now some of the time, Vivas makes a distinction between what he calls the basic symbolic activity and the aesthetic. So you've got the basic symbolic activity and you've got, on the one hand, and you've got the aesthetic on the other. The basic symbolic activity, by which the world becomes meaningful to us, underlies the other domains of human life, including the aesthetic, the cognitive, the moral, the religious. These are the kind of the four main domains of human life that uh, Vivas distinguishes, so aesthetic, cognitive, moral, religious. But Vivas tends to conflate the aesthetic with the basic symbolic activity, and this is because the aesthetic is about the symbols themselves, whereas the cognitive, the moral, and the religious domains of life use symbols for other purposes. Um, it makes a distinction between transitive and intransitive, so moral, religious, and cognitive would be transitive kind of kinds of activities where you're concerned with using symbols for some purpose. Aesthetic activity is intransitive because you're focused just on the symbol itself. Um, so yeah, in the in the aesthetic transaction uh, through aesthetic activity or experience, so it's it's through aesthetic activity or experience that our basic symbolic activity is revealed to ourselves. Right, in this uh, aesthetic transaction between person and art object, aesthetic object, um, our basic symbolic activity is revealed more clearly than in other kinds of experience. 
So a basic refrain in Vivas' work is that art underlies or creates our experience of reality, or as I already mentioned, it's through that, through art, that we grasp our reality. And the technical term that Vivas uses to talk about how art creates reality is constitutive symbol. This is a big uh, word, a big phrase, a big important and uh, profound sounding phrase and common in Vivas's work. Um, I'll try to break it down. So constitutive symbol. This concept is influenced by the German philosopher Ernst Cassirer and more generally by neo-Kantian philosophy. So it's very Kantian. It goes back very much to Kant. Um, it's worthwhile quoting one of Vivas's important passages on constitutive symbols and then trying to explain it or elucidate it, uh, uh, explicate it, whatever word I'm searching for. Um, Vivas writes, so Vivas writes that the constitutive symbol is a creative synthesis of empirical matter which manifests itself in dramatic and moral terms and which functions categorially. The constitutive symbol is not arrived at by a mere reshuffling or rearranging of the matter of experience. It is creative, and it is a genuine synthesis. Um, so to try to explain this a little bit, the poet, the poet takes up empirical matter, which is to say the, the stuff of experience, and creatively synthesizes it, put it, puts it together into a new thing, a new coherent whole. Um, as Vivas shows elsewhere, the creative synthesis, the putting together of this empirical matter into something new and novel, happens through the use of poetic forms. I won't get too much into that today. But these forms, for example, the sonnet is a kind of common poetic form. These forms come down to us through tradition and are used to inform, uh, give form to, uses this word inform in the sense of it gives form to the material of the poet's life experience, the poet that the, uh, the, ex, um, the material that the poet gets out of his uh, or her life experience. And in really great poems, the form and the matter of the poem modify each other to create a new experience. So a constitutive symbol uh, can be a poem itself, or it can be part of a poem. So a book like Kafka's The Trial is a good example of this. So the novel itself is a constitutive symbol, but it also contains constitutive symbols. Um, and some books can be constitutive symbols without containing constitutive symbols. I think he gives the example of Jane Austen, maybe, as an example of this. Um, but The Trial is a good a good example. Um, so it contains, it is a constitutive symbol and it contains constitutive symbols and maybe the most famous constitutive symbol in the trial is the section called Before the Law, um, which uh, you can take a look at. Uh, it's worth reading if you haven't read it before and there's a, um, a video version of it. I'll see if I can uh, link to that if there's a, a, a version of that online. Um, but Vivas tells us that the constitutive symbol in this sense, as in something like before the law, the before the law section, uh, the constitutive symbol is a complex situation or scene which gathers the significance of events preceding it and illumines the scenes or situations that follow. And this seems to be precisely the function of before the law 
in the, in the context of the trial. It compresses into itself the meaning of what has come before, at least some part of the meaning of what has come before, and it helps us interpret what will happen next. Uh, it categor categorizes the past and the future, tells us this experience is of a certain kind, a certain kind of experience, and it does this in dramatic and moral terms uh, through showing actions and the values of actions and objects and events, right? It kind of portrays something and reveals their value. Um, and remember that the constitutive symbol manifests itself in dramatic and moral terms and functions categorially. So through showing actions and the values things have, the symbol categorizes experience as perhaps a feudal or ultimately mysterious, or doomed, or comic, or one of these kinds of things, or tragic, whatever. Um, and this is how the trial as a whole functions for the reader when it is read aesthetically as a constitutive symbol. The trial itself helps us gather up and interpret the significance of our experience. It uh, helps us categorize our experience as, ex as an experience of a certain kind, or a, kind of our life experience. It, helps us uh, categorize that, categorize it. And um, the trial and other symbols like it constitute our reality. They help constitute our reality for us, make our reality what it is for us. So to read the trial is to experience something in a certain way, and the way and the thing are inextricable, inextricable right? The way you experience the thing and the thing itself are inextricable for us, uh, whether in art or at, in practical life, right? The thing experienced and the way it is experienced are bound up with each other. The thing, in a sense, is the way it is experienced. Um, the trial and other poems like it are what Vivas calls dramatic patterns of human life. Uh, and Vivas, alluding to Oscar Wilde, writes that life, in fact, imitates art. The big um, uh, uh, saying that uh, Oscar Wilde had also. So he says that life imitates art in the sense that we discover in it what the artist, through his work, tells us is there. Uh, we read into the world the poem's order and intelligible action and the nature of the actors and their destinies becomes the means by which we understand ourselves and our fellows. And again, the trial is an interesting example to think about in this, in, uh, in this context. What is it telling us about um, our destinies and how we understand ourselves and our fellows? Uh, so Vivas, as far as I can tell, did not quite make clear how aesthetic experience bleeds over into practical life. Um, but he writes, for example, that uh, so he write, he says, given a poem of quality and a reader who knows how to read, the, the poem becomes, more or less unwittingly, uh, part of the categorical scheme by means of which the reader grasps his world. In its absence, in the absence of the arts in general, the world lacks the organization and the definition that it has when they function categorially. So if aesthetic experience functions somehow to give order to the world, to orient us in the world, which is why um, I'm saying that Vivas has a reorientational view of art, reorienta uh, reorientational knowledge. So now the mechanism may be mysterious, but it seems to me that there is truth in this. 
Uh, I've noticed that at least when I'm in certain moods, music, for example, can change how I perceive the world around me and uh, make it somehow more full of meaning. I don't know if you've ever had this kind of experience. Um, and a similar thing happens to me from reading certain poems or novels and the effect of things like video games and movies and storybooks on uh, children's behavior can be quite obvious. Uh, some of this can be classed as a simpler kind of behavioral knowledge, like when my son, for example, tries to jump like Super Mario or uh, ride on a broom like Harry Potter. But it also seems clear that kids are learning how to put the objects and events of their life into a certain kind of frame of significance. As when dealing with a certain person becomes uh, you know, like a boss fight, to use video game jargon. And remember that for Vivas, poet poetry presents dramatic patterns of human life. And I think you can see this um, maybe more clearly with kids um, when they're first learning how to uh, understand their own experience. Uh, so perhaps one way to look at it is like this. So the reorientational knowledge imparted to us by the poem is not paraphrasable. There's another point that um, Vivas makes, and this goes back to discussions about the heresy of paraphrase. But the reorientational knowledge that we get from experiencing a poem can't really be paraphrased. We can't say it in another way using conceptual non-literary language. Um, or rather, we can't create in another way the same experience of significance that a particular poem gives us. Um, as I see it, this is the difference between having an experience and being told about an experience. Or we can say it's like the difference in Skinnerian behaviorism between contingency-shaped behavior and rule-governed behavior. So contingency shaping is a technical term for learning by experience. You're learning from your own experience. And learning from direct experience is always more impactful, always more influential on our behavior than learning a set of rules about how to act. So the literary critic um, functions as like a kind of like a teacher and can give us rules or guidance about how to experience a poem but the critic can't give us the actual experience right so we can't really understand the rules until we go and have the experience ourselves and the experience any experience changes us it shapes our behavior again to use a kind of behavioristic uh, word so experience of anything uh, serves to shape our behavior. How we experience it shapes our behavior. And the experience of art, the aesthetic experience, is one kind of experience. And all experiences change us, and so change how we experience reality in the future. And it's not something that we can just replace with rules about how to act in the future or how to see the world in the future. You have to actually go through the experience and be shaped by that experience. So, uh, just to kind of wrap up here, it seems to me that art is one important tool we have for experimenting with and for modifying experience, or to put it another way, for shaping behavior. Um, this is why Peckham refers to it as reorientational. But arguably, arguably, it's not the only thing that does this. Um, philosophy and science and religion do this too, at least according to Peckham. And I, I have trouble seeing art 
at least as we find it in modern society, as necessarily more primary than science and religion. So I'm a little suspicious of Vivas's claim that uh, poetry grounds knowledge, that it, as he says, offers us the means to obtain knowledge. Um, actually, many people, maybe more traditional people, would claim that religion grounds knowledge. And it would be interesting to, uh, to know how Vivas would respond to this kind of argument. Um, certainly for a large period of history, much art was created in a religious context and served a religious or spiritual function. And um, yeah, in the 19th century, as people like Peckham and others have discussed, religious belief began to wane, right? And uh, art came to replace religion for some people. Or maybe um, the aesthetic experience began to... I think this probably happened earlier, but the aesthetic experience began to become independent of religion. Uh, but whereas earlier it was more bound up with, with religion. And perhaps Vivas's view can be seen as an extension of this trend, where art rather than religion reveals to us the nature of reality. But um, it's tricky to argue that art per se, art necessarily, precedes other kinds of knowledge or aesthetic experience precedes other kinds of knowledge. Um, I mean, there's an argument for it, but it's uh, tricky. So Vivas could perhaps make a stronger case that aesthetic experience or aesthetic perception, as he defines it, grounds, not grounds knowledge. Um, as he mentions in many places, art objects, such as poems, are only one kind of thing that we can perceive aesthetically. Um, but in fact, anything can perceive aesthetically as he recognizes, right? He recognizes aesthetic experience as something broader than just art. So you can perceive pretty much anything aesthetically that you can perceive. Um, so yeah, anything can perceive, so and to perceive anything aesthetically, it just becomes kind of its self-contained, own self-contained object that is just about itself. That's not um, recognized as being useful for some other purpose. You're just experiencing the thing itself. Um, and it's just that art objects, like poems, are specifically made for the purpose of aesthetic experience and are more conducive to aesthetic experience than maybe everyday objects and experiences. But anyway, so one problem with Vivas is that he doesn't always keep his own distinctions clear between basic symbolic activity, which I mentioned earlier, which is really um, like our uh, capacity to perceive the world as meaningful. So he doesn't always make a clear distinction between this basic symbolic activity, aesthetic experience, and then art. So he sometimes says that we perceive through art, whereas I'm not sure that's exactly what he means, right? We could also say that we perceive through, um, we are able to perceive the world through uh, because we've have the capacity for aesthetic experience, or because we have this basic symbolic capacity. And um, maybe there's places where he makes this all more clear. But um, yeah, so far I'm a little bit confused about um, the relations of all of these things, and sometimes he see, seems to um, maybe overstate the case for art in relation to how we experience the world. Um, and, but I, and I think you could also reasonably argue that religious or uh, a religious or scientific impulse grounds knowledge rather than an, an aesthetic impulse. So if you look at um, child development, certainly the stories told to us and the songs sung to us, 
and the pictures we see and draw and stuff, these help us give our lives dramatic patterning, to use Vivas's term. But there's also a primitive science, I think, in the child's experience of moving about and seeing what works and what doesn't work, of seeing what causes pleasure and what causes pain, of seeing what is caused to happen when you do this versus what is caused to happen when you do this other thing. And it doesn't seem to me that this primitive science is based on aesthetic experience necessarily. And likewise, the toddler's constant questioning of what, you know, what is this, what is that, and why, why does this happen, why this, why that, why this, um, you know, this can be seen as a kind of primitive religion or philosophy or metaphysics. And I do think that for the mature individual, at least for adults, like mature individuals, knowledge is indeed always partly rooted in an aesthetic sensibility in a dramatic pattern or an elegant relation of parts into a whole. But I don't think the aesthetic is the only basis for knowledge necessarily. So if Vivas is saying that aesthetic experience is the exclusive ground of knowledge, I think he overstates his case here. But in any case, despite all these little quibbles I have, um, Vivas's view of literature as consisting of constitutive symbols, or as being a constitutive symbol, as again a symbol that constitutes our reality, I think this is really worth thinking seriously about. All right, and that is where I'm going to end for today, so thanks for listening, and see ya.